Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. This uh, needs a preamble. Ah, we the people. We need to get funny energy out of our system because this is based on the actual Lake Titicaca. Okay. All right. Is that, am I, sorry, am I supposed to find that funny in some capacity? I have a scholar's mind, Tristan. Okay. Uh, that this is like this is based on the actual Lake Titicaca. So, okay. That is a word I'll be saying a few times during this. It's a word, look. It's we're all here to learn about history and we're here to learn about real world events. And sometimes real world places and things are all are named in ways that in another language sounds kind of silly, right? Yes. I can't think of a second example, but I'm sure there is one. There is uh, a dildo Newfoundland. There we go. There you go. We found one. So what are we going to talk about in this place, in this, in Lake Titicaca? Well, first of all, everybody, this is, it's probably not aliens. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize people were listening. Oh, hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, listeners. Here, have some tea. Have some tea. Yes, this is a podcast where we talk about ancient aliens, ancient astronaut theories, and we look into them while learning a lot about real world history. I say we look into them just because mostly we debunk them, but, uh, you know, we put probably in the title of our podcast. So maybe sometimes we won't debunk them. I don't know. But that seems to be the theme that we're we're going with right now. Uh, my name is Scott Nicewander. I am a dunce. And I know nothing. And I'm here just like you listeners to learn about what Tristan has prepared for us today. And I'm Tristan Johnson. I uh, I took the comment about like uh, one afternoon of research personally to heart uh, from last week. So this week <laughs> I decided to just go absolutely nuts. You probably noticed that the, the notes is like almost twice as long as our typical things. So. They sure are. We have a lot to get through. Yeah, because I uh, this time I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to read a whole damn book for this one. Oh my goodness. Okay, <laughs> well, let's let's I I we have to dive in cuz I'm so excited. What are we talking about? I mean, I feel like I know what we're talking about cuz it's a it's a term, it's a place that's come up a lot in the show Ancient Aliens. But t- t- introduce it. Yeah. Uh, you spend any time in ancient astronaut circles or uh, the people who really believe in Atlantis or really like any sort of like fringe pseudo-archaeology type stuff, you're going to come across a site by the name of Pumapunku, which is in Bolivia. And it is a very interesting looking site and does have some pretty unique features and some genuine mysteries, which leads to all sorts of interesting stuff and a lot of people to uh, fill in the ambiguity with their own theories. 
But then as you dig, you find interesting stories about, and I'm, I'm very sorry I had to do this to you again, Scott. Uh-huh. You find out interesting stories about nationalism, oh. colonialism, mm-hmm. and then eventually we get to Elon Musk again. Man, and what are a, the odds? <laughs> and a coup. Um, what are the odds that we keep coming back to nationalism and colonialism and specifically Elon Musk? That's such a strange one that we keep bringing up. Yeah. I tried not to this time, okay? But then all of a sudden, I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Now we got to talk. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess we're doing this. We got to talk about it. Yeah. Tell me about it. So Puma Punku is a very interesting site in the fact that it is made with uh, very precisely cut stones at 90 degree angles. Uh, some of them are very large, but have been precisely cut so that they fit together almost uncannily. Yeah, so like, very impressive stonework. Not so something you can do with like bashing rocks against it until you can make like a block or something. Yeah, yeah. I've seen these because like, like I said, these these come up in the show Ancient Aliens a lot and they are quite precise. I was going to make a joke that they're like ancient Lego pieces, but they're they're much more precise than I feel like a Lego piece are. They're incredibly intricate. They're very cool. Yeah. And so uh, people who are into ancient aliens, people who are into Atlantis uh, point to this uh, high degree of technological sophistication and ask questions like, how move stone? How cut stone so good? <sighs> these and are these are the the existential questions that we have found ourselves asking time and time again. How move stone? How cut stone yeah. good? And um, this is a society that, as far as we know, had no writing system and did not know about the wheel. So how cut stone? No wheel. Yeah. How do that? That make that does not make sense to me. You're about to just like buy into my caveman talk and just be like, that, that no makes sense. No makes. I sense. almost. <laughs> I was this close, and I was like, our listeners need. They they deserve better than than just devolving into having no no filler words and just like we podcast now. Thank listen. I think that's the Joe Rogan experience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I loved I don't, this is a complete aside, but I just remembered that somebody like uh, perfectly described it's like Joe Rogan feels like a uh, like a steps con who got interested in intellectual things one day and just brings the smartest people before him and be like, explain to Joe why sun so bright, <laughs> how sky blue, but space black. What? Exactly. And uh, yeah. he, But they did the tagline is that he believes everything they say. This is going to be my next D&D character, a uh, barbarian who uh, wants to collect knowledge but isn't very bright. It's going to be great. This is incredible. Uh, less about the most popular podcaster in the world and more about this second <laughs> most popular. Exactly. The second most popular one. <laughs> yeah. So Puma Punku is part of a site called Tiwanaku. Mm. And Tiwanaku is probably the most mysterious but yet popular site in uh, the pre-Hispanic Andean region, which is sort of like the place where people speak Quechua. It's sort of like the uh, homeland of the Inca Empire. Okay. But uh, Tiwanaku is in Bolivia. It's about 3,900 3, meters above sea level, uh, which is a lot, <laughs> to the point where like uh, these people like lived with slightly less oxygen than normal. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. So it's like a pretty like out there place. 
And it was the center of a civilization called the uh, Tiwanaku people, for lack of a better word. And uh, they lived from about the years uh, 400 to 1000 CE and dominated much of the Andes Mountains region. Mm -hmm. There were a system of raised fields that uh, fed it. They grew crops around the shores of Lake Titicaca, which is about 10 kilometers away from the site. The monuments at the site are made out of andesite, which is a stone that's common in the region. And um, it was so big and so impressive that not only did it inspire a lot of Incan architecture, but also the Incans, despite not being related to them, claimed that they were descended from these. Oh, that's interesting. That's like, I've got an uncle who works at Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trust me. I know all the hot tips, all the all the, all the the stuff that's coming out. My dad works for Nintendo. Use the Strength HM on the truck and uh, mm-hmm. you get Mew. <laughs> uh, but the thing about this site, is, and this happened a lot too, like uh, there's another site in Mexico called Teotihuacan. And these sites are very old and then they were abandoned by the civilization that built them. And then another civilization comes back later and like, reveres it the people of the the mexica people in mexico thought that it was like built by gods Mm. Uh, so it's like interesting stuff here can i yeah so i was just gonna comment really quickly do because i live in a place called roanoke virginia which people mistake for roanoke north carolina which is a place uh where people seemed the history books will say that people mysteriously vanished and disappeared much like the places that you're talking about here are there any ancient astronaut theories about roanoke north carolina or is that too uh too too white people to be an ancient astronaut thing that is uh, a very good question i don't have an answer for yeah that could be a fun one to look into just because i i live in a different roanoke that people constantly mistake for it and so i would love to dedicate an episode to a different roanoke just to get it out of my system potentially as someone who lives in a london i understand (laughs) there you go we both live in the lesser lesser popular cities of the bigger named cities Mm -hmm. that that sentence didn't make sense but you know what i meant roanoke is its own fun it's a fun mystery though it uh, sure is. We're going to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss it if we talk about it in the future. Yeah, so back to Tiwanaku. So in Tiwanaku, uh, the Incas, much like their uh, Aztec uh, friends to the north, did have a claim that this was like the origin of their civilization and where their gods came from. Even though what it turns out with with archaeology and research and such that they are actually more related to a group called the Wari who were actually Tiwanaku's imperial rivals. But- oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, by the time the Spanish arrived in South America in the early 16th century, Tiwanaku had been long abandoned and was more of like a mythic place. And it's places like this that probably fueled legends of things like El Dorado and Ah. such like that, that there were like these mythical ancient ruins that were hidden in the interior or in the mountains or in the jungle that could have had treasure. But like the thing is like, a lot of South America and Central America had a lot of ruins, much like, you know, most of the world does, because there's like, you know, layers of civilizations where like a lasagna of dirt and refuse. <laughs> That's a really great imagery. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so uh, this was one of those sites that really captured people's imaginations. But the problem was in this will set up a lot of a big political racial tension within Bolivia specifically because Bolivia became a big center for uh, Spanish imperialism because I don't know if you know this about Bolivia, but it is 
made of silver. I did not know this about Bolivia. So Bolivia has uh, gigantic silver deposits. And very early on in the Spanish conquest, when they got a hold of Bolivia, they exploited the crap out of the indigenous people there to mine tons of silver. So much so, you might have learned this in world history class at some point, but the Spanish mined so much silver that they actually inflated the silver supply and caused economic collapses as far as like China at the same time. If I did learn that in history, it was definitely one of those years where I wasn't paying attention, which is to say it was every year in high school and middle school. So I'm learning when I said at the start that I was a dunce that I meant it. I know nothing. I know a very specific amount of history mostly about the uh, 20th century and I know nothing else to so 20th century paper printing in regards to comic books. That's what I know. And I know nothing else. Well, uh, then it's a good thing you got me. Thank you, Tristan. <laughs> but uh, Bolivia quickly established a powerful colonial elite made up of white Spaniards and a large indentured indigenous population uh, that did amounts of manual labor. And when you do stuff like that, you have to quickly try and justify why you are the one giving the commands and why the people who are dying because uh, mercury is involved with mining silver. So mm. a lot of people died. Why they, why they had to do that? Why are they slaves while you are not? And that leads to you trying to uh, talk about why you're so great and why they're so bad. And when you have something like Tiwanaku, this like, amazing ruin Mm -hmm. uh it sort of throws a wrench into that and that's going to probably be a lot of the subtle motivations behind a lot of the random theories that come up about this place um because i the city itself uh colonial elites tried to downplay it they tried to express disinterest and so for a long time tiwanaku kind of just went under the radar Mm. it was a site that People didn't really want to pay much attention to because nobody really uh, wanted to glorify the ancient, uh, you know, Tiwanaku people who lived in Bolivia Mm -hmm. until 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 one day uh, an Austrian naval engineer, warrior, adventurer and entrepreneur. What a uh, resume. Wow. (laughs) By the name of Arthur Poznanski, who went by the name of Arturo found Tiwanaku and was absolutely blown away by it. And so the keep so let's 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 put the story in mind. Yeah. We got Bolivia with this political struggle between a colonial white elite and its indigenous people. Of course. And then an Austrian man shows up and is one of the first people to express a whole lot of interest in this site mm-hmm. in the early 1900s. So he popularized the site greatly, called it the cradle of the American man and the heart of civilization and starting in 1904 started to do a huge survey of the site that hadn't been done yet. Mm. And he wrote lots of different books on Tiwanaku. And in the introduction of one of them, he introduced himself as, uh, let's see, the president of the Archaeological Society of Bolivia, commander of the Royal Order of Wasa, and Mm -hmm. uh, that he was an officer and member in organizations like the New York Academy of Sciences and the International Congress of Americanists. Just adding on to that resume. All of which did not seem to be all that true ah okay <laughs> so we're gonna get an idea of this guy <laughs> we, you can just make stuff up to sound important mm-hmm. i'm gonna i gotta remember that for the next episode i gotta not introduce myself as a dunce i gotta say like ah yes scholar and professor at prestigious college university scott nicewander yeah that's P- phd um, 
that's this guy. Um, this was a time where if you were rich and white, you could basically say whatever the hell you wanted and people would just kind of believe you. Oh, dang. Because there was no internet to check up on anyway. <laughs> um, so he did a lot of extremely important work to uh, survey and uh, the archaeological understanding of Tiwanaku including recording down all of the structures, mapping it out, checking out all the monoliths and uh, carved walls. But because of his, what was written in the book as extreme ideas and crankish way in which he promoted them. <laughs> crankish, uh, And yeah. some of his, quote, more dubious connections, uh, a lot of this writing did not get kept into the archaeological record. But I heard he was the, the president of the Archaeological Society of Bolivia. Yeah, so he said. Mm -hmm. He also uh, started to, later in his career, get a little bit more controversial because he started having some interesting uh, things to say about the geological status of Tiwanaku, as well as claims about race oh no yeah oh no <laughs> uh, oh i don't like where this is going yeah uh so he claimed that you know what i'm not even gonna use some of the words he used to describe indigenous I'm, people i'm reading who... them on the script and i'm like that's oh that's that's no good yeah so he wrote uh, uh he blamed largely like the lack of progress being made and like uh damaged the site on indigenous people and the catholic church and had words to say about what he thought about indigenous people so there's that yeah they um, weren't they weren't good words that's if you, if you haven't caught on with that, they weren't they weren't thoughtful words that he yeah, chose to use. Um, we'll just put a pin in that for a little bit and we'll come back to him later and talk a little bit about Pumapunku, which is sort of a site in Tiwanaku. OK. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about Pumapunku. So Tiwanaku is a really big deal for indigenous culture and it's a big symbol in Bolivia. But mm -hmm. uh, what's more globally famous is Pumapunku, which is a monument at the site. The name comes from the Aymara and Quechua word Puma or cougar, sure. uh, and yeah. punku means door or gate. So I point out that this is literally translates to cat door. It's the cat door. Um, and it is very impressive, although given the first person who wrote about them, turns out to have, uh, there was a few exaggerations in its description. So it does contain some very large uh, stones. Some descriptions say as, as heavy as 440 tons, which would be quite impressive. That is huge. But uh, a more accurate and scientific one would say that the largest is about 131 tons. Still impressive. Yes. But uh, more doable, I guess, would be the word, the answer there. Do, I, do you... I'm stuck on cat door. I'm sorry. My brain gets stuck on certain <laughs> things that you say. Do you, does that mean a door that looks like a cat or a door that's made out of cats or a door that is specifically for cats and only cats? There are three possibilities. My guess is that it probably has something to do with uh, spiritual beliefs and uh, specifically like cougars in that culture probably some spiritual significance i don't know is it akin to like a doggy door where it is a door for your doggy this is a this is a door for cougar spirits and what possibly. possibly uh that would be something that we probably don't have the best answers for gotcha. because uh what we'll learn is that a lot of question marks exist around the site of Pumapunku. Gotcha. All right. I'll, I'll stop quizzing you. On, I'll get, get back to the stuff that you did actually do research on and not me being like, but what do these words mm -hmm. mean? Um. So yeah, it, the biggest one weighs about 131 tons, Yes. which is very heavy and pretty hard to move. 
but not like 440 tons hard to move. Uh, then the second largest is only 85 tons. <laughs> only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy. Easy peasy. I mean, wh- how much can you deadlift? Yeah. Probably less than one ton, Probably to, to be perfectly honest. A little bit less, maybe. Yeah. All right, that's fair. But yeah, like a lot of the site, though, is made of stones that are um, yes. like ones you can actually pretty easily move. So the first question of like, how move big stone? Most of the stones are not humongous stones. Fair enough. There, so there's there's a select few that are that seem challenging and tricky. But for the most part, like it's big stones, but we it's not undoable. Yep. Also, uh, doing some petrographic analysis, they have found that the stone Stones probably came from a quarry site that's near Lake Titicaca, which is only about 10 kilometers away from the site. The ones that are smaller have come from further away. You say only 10 kilometers. That's still that's still a trek. That's still a ways. Yeah, but, uh, you know, with a team of people and like a sled or something like that, I'm sure we don't have the answers to how they did it, but... It's not outside of the realm of possibility. There's a lot of different theories about how they were able to do this. Uh, some involve uh, making rope out of llama skin. Interesting. And uh, you'll probably get some flashbacks to our last episode, but also the uses of planes and ramps and those simple, simple machines. machines. People had them. People knew them. They knew how to use them. They're good stuff. They're so good. We're still using them. But again, to this day, I would just put out there that we actually don't know, know how these were done. Guesses. Uh, we don't- Educated guesses. Yeah, we don't have a case like in Egypt where we have like sites of unfinished stones or like Mm -hmm. unfinished things that could give us an idea or like what happened in uh, Easter Island where we found an unfinished statue with a lot of, you know, stuff to show us how they made it. Right. But so here's my question then, Tristan. You're talking about moving the stones, but the 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 thing that this show keeps hammering in on is how intricately these stones are created and crafted and, and carved and, and engineered in a way. How did that happen? Now that I also can't definitively oh, answer. Oh, dang it. Um, I, you, you had me there for a second. I thought you were going <laughs> to enlighten me. Well, you still can. Yeah, yeah. it's it's They are very impressive because each stone is like chiseled and designed to interlock with the surrounding stones. If you ever get a chance to do a Google image search on Puma Punku and you can see how these stones are oh my gosh uh, incredibly good at being fit with each other. Yes, please please Google image search any episode topic that we talk about because almost certainly there's something cool that you can see and this is an audio podcast so we can only do so much with words that we have but just from what I'm seeing, I'll try to paint you a little word picture. These are big stones that look like there are several kind of layers or like steps inside of like carved inside of them, geometrical shapes inside. And it almost looks like for being so ancient, it almost looks like a piece of modern art, if I'm being real honest with you. Uh, but yeah, just Google it. It's really cool. Yeah, there are two types of impressive stones at Puma Punku. There are those you're talking about, the sort of like H formation ones. Yes. That look like they're like almost like Legos that are designed to fit together and interlock really well. But then there's also uh, things that almost look like a puzzle of stones mm. that just seem to fit perfectly together. Like they've been chiseled to just fit perfectly in uh, uh, layers. And What has been interesting with those is that they are so flush and so like tight together that there are some where you can't even fit a razor blade between them. Oh my God. Yeah, these are 
Yeah, these are really cool. You do yourself a favor, look these up. They're so interesting. Mm-hmm. So what these all imply is that this is a society that had a very strong grasp on things like descriptive geometry. And so they had to be able to draw things in three dimensions to be able to cut them properly. That they had some form of uh, precision tools and some way to make precision cuts on stone. Yes. Things that uh, after the civilization uh, fell through one way or another did not pass on to their descendants. The Inca did not have such technology. Mm. So it was a technology that was uh, lost in some capacity. And the masonry of the the kind of H-shaped ones is also uh, indicating that they probably had an idea of uh, like levels and surface joints and probably implies that they also had forms of mass fabrication mm-hmm. and um, standardization. There's a lot of uh, signs that they had forms of technology that that did not pass on to their descendants. And at the same time, we do not have evidence of how they did it. But it is very impressive. It's incredibly impressive. And yeah, extremely precise, straight lines. I mean, I know that we don't know the exact way of how these were created, but to just imagine that they would do it without specific tools like levels and and things to keep these lines so straight and precise, 90 degree angles here and there, like perfect. It's like, so how do you do it? How do you do it? And we do know that a lot of the common tools and techniques that would have been that we know of that existed in the continent at the time, like using hammer stones and things like that, would not have been precise enough to get these like 90 degree angles that are so sharp. So what the answer is is that there's something uh, that this technique is uh, waiting to be explained. We don't have anything that shows how they were able to do it exactly. They learned it. But from... guess what? Yeah. <laughs> they probably I don't know where they learned it from, but um, Aliens. I will say that this is where our friend Poznansky comes in with his explanation. All right. Hit me with it, trustworthy Poznansky. So his solution was first of all that obviously, remember how I said he had controversial ideas about geology? Yes. So he claimed that uh this place that is on top of a mountain was once a port. Okay. Because it used to be at a much lower altitude, but uh, the geological changes that caused the sinking of Atlantis uh-huh. led it to be pushed up into the high mountains where it is now. Ah, the Earth gives and it takes. It took Atlantis below and it pushed Pumapunku upwards. Mm-hmm. And in this event, the Aztlan people that he wrote about were forced to flee. And uh, that's how they spread their civilizations throughout the Americas. So the Aztlan people are a mythical, or not a mythical people, but it comes from the Mexica people mm-hmm. in Mexico, okay. where the sort of origin myth of the Aztecs, or what would become the people of Tenochtitlan, who became like the head of the Aztec Triple Alliance. I'm getting too much into this, yes. but um, the Aztlan people were the people that the predecessors of the Tenochtitlanos, the Mexicas, that they traveled to the Valley of Mexico, and there's a whole prophecy about how... Uh, they were going to build their city of Tenochtitlan. They were searching to find the place where they would build their great city. And they were said, there's a prophecy about like, you're going to build your city on the spot of a prickly pear with a eagle landing on it. And that's going to be the the site where we build your great city. And they saw it in the middle of a lake and they built Tenochtitlan. And that's why that symbol is on the Mexican flag today. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. You can tell. I have spent a lot more time studying Mexico than I have South America. So I'm just like, Tristan, you're providing my favorite thing in the whole wide world, which is context. And I love context. And you're doing the exact same thing that I do, which is 
you're you're going back and you're there's so many interesting facts and details that you got to fit in because everything's so interesting. I love history. I love learning about it. So thank you for for this. I you're like, "Oh, I'm, I'm in two in the weeds. Get more in the weeds. More. Get weedy with it." Already. But that's not the word that Poznanski used. Aztlan was a term for the basically the refugees of this ancient Atlantean organization that uh, mm-hmm. that settled the Americas. And that uh, is his answer. So this was not taken super serious by people at the time. And he was sidelined because of that. But there was one group of people who were really big fans of his work. No. One of his. <laughs> no, don't say it. No, don't say um, it out loud with your mouth. Yeah, he used to give a lot of papers at uh, German conferences and with German scholars. And he was a friend of a uh, fellow explorer by the name of Edmund Kiss, uh, mm-hmm. who helped uh, popularize him, who was also, uh, he worked for a little group called the SS. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, this whole thing uh, about Atlantis and this like precursor civilization uh, was very interesting to the Nazis um, mm. because they were trying to build this mythology of a Nordic master race that arose after the fall of Atlantis. And that um, this was a way to say that obviously Tiwanaku was made by white people um, uh-huh. before the fall of Atlantis. This is everything you're saying is logical. And I'm following it, except I'm not. I don't get it. Yeah, maybe we could talk about this in a different um, episode of this show because there is uh, some really interesting history in the sense that when the Nazis were trying to um, come to power and when they were trying to, you know, justify their existence, one of the things they did to do so was try to build this elaborate mythology of Germany, a country that did not exist before the 1870s. Right. Um, And so they had to figure it out. And going to these pseudo archaeologists was a common way to do so. Yeah. Just trying to connect everything back to, I mean, the connections to Atlantis, I guess I just never realized that people genuinely thought Atlantis was a real thing. Did they, or were they just trying to build a story? They're, they're, you know, you know, there's UFO people, there's Bigfoot people, there's Atlantis people. Uh, they still exist today. They still have their own little, um, this is why, uh, we're starting with ancient aliens, but I would love if this show, you know, takes off and we do a billion episodes that I can talk about all other real interesting forms of pseudo-archaeology. So, yes, I would love to. Yeah. I look, I love Aquaman as, as much as the next person. So I would love to talk about Atlantis. Uh, so this all to kind of like bring it home speaks to, uh, these ideas about nationalist archaeology. And this is, uh, what a lot of, the Tiwanaku and Pumapunku site speak to. And I'll get into that in a second. But basically, there's a lot of nationalism attached to archaeology. Mm-hmm. And I read this in a wonderful book that is escaping my uh, memory because I wrote it. I, I read it like four years ago for the Ancient Aliens episode of Step Back that I made. And there you go. But there are lots of cases, and especially a lot of cases of pseudo-archaeology and things like big... Uh, hoaxes and things like that can be linked to trying to find some sort of nationalist agenda. Like there was a famous case of a Japanese archaeological hoax Mm -hmm. that was dug up 
because you know, archaeological record shows that there's a lot of Chinese influence on Japanese culture at a certain period in history. Mm-hmm. And this site was supposed to make the claim that no, actually, it was the Japanese who uh, developed the culture and they're the ones who exported it to the Chinese. And so it's like, you can see the kind of things they're trying to go for here. Yeah. And so yeah, nationalist myth-making is sort of part of uh, the hazards of dealing with archaeology. <sighs> That's frustrating. Yeah. And this plays a pretty big role in our little story here in Tiwanaku. Well, tell me about it. Uh, let's take it to Bolivia. Yeah. So, um, so Bolivia is uh, named after uh, Simón de Bolívar, the great revolutionary leader who basically freed a bunch of South American countries and Central American countries too from uh, Spanish imperialism. So he was a big leader. But uh, yeah, these revolutionaries then needed to build a country in Bolivia when there was never a Bolivia before Spaniards showed up. So they had to build a lot of like their own myths and uh, like identity to try and figure out like what what does it mean to be Bolivian if this country existed for the sole purpose of uh, being a colony for Spaniards? And before that, it was multiple different cultures and empires and ethnic groups living in various layers and such. Yeah, it's a challenging question. So when Bolivia got independence, uh, its second president in 1825, President Antonio José de Sucre, actually had the uh, Gateway of the Sun, which is part of the Tiwanaku site, actually excavated to serve as a symbol of the nation. This is not part of Pumapunku, but it has similar engineering. And there was, again, the 19th to 20th century, a lot of these indigenous artifacts uh, were the source of contention because even though the Spanish throne had been, you know, uh, freed from Bolivia, there were still a entrenched non-indigenous elite that did not want Tiwanaku to be a symbol of their country because it was a symbol of indigenous people. And indigenous people were, Mm. um, you know, not the desirable racial caste. I don't like that. Yeah. And then things started to change in a very interesting way. So in 1932, there was a monolith discovered by an American archaeologist by the name of Wendell C. Bennett. And the nationalist newspapers attacked him because at this point, Bolivia and Paraguay were having some political tension. And, you know, they were nationalists. They were Bolivian nationalists. They didn't want uh, an American foreigner coming and excavating their site. So they actually kind of pushed them away. Nobody wants American foreigners anywhere. Mm-hmm. So. But because of fears that this site, that this monolith was going to be destroyed, Poznanski coming back. Coming back, Poznanski. Poznanski actually paid a good amount of money to have this monolith moved from its context, which archaeology, bad thing, don't do that. Don't, no, 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 no. And they actually moved it 70 kilometers to the capital of La Paz. And this is interesting. So like these two foreigners discover and haul this huge indigenous, like this huge piece of ancient indigenous Crasswork, amazing piece of uh, of things, mm-hmm. and it they, they just plop it into La Paz, the capital of Bolivia. <laughs> right about here looks pretty good. What do you think? Yeah. So the white Bolivian elites hated the monolith because they thought it was a reminder of their primitive past, <sighs> while the uh, indigenous and mestizo Aymara residents of La Paz actually believed that it was cursed. Hmm. Uh, and they blamed it for a lot of the bad things that kind of came with that because you know it was a tough time to be a Bolivian back then. But then things started to change because that tension went away and that monument stayed and it started to become kind of part of La Paz. And what happened as time moved on is that indigenous artists and 
like people who were trying to push for indigenous civil rights and stuff like that started to kind of be inspired by it. And it became almost like a symbol of like, you know, indigeneity and like the kind of like proudness of because like there's this symbol of our great civilization in the middle of our city. Yeah. And so what happened is that in 2002, just to show how much progress had been made, it was returned to Tiwanaku with a procession, actually. And there was still some like concerns about curses and things like that with moving it. It's, it's always a concern with curses. And here's the part where I start getting into where I start turning into Tristan and, and um, we get to the things. Which is that in 2006, Bolivia elected its first indigenous president. His name is Evo Morales. Okay. And anybody who has been listening to the news in the last few years might be familiar with this guy's name. He actually, being the first indigenous president of Bolivia, had his inauguration at the site, at Tiwanaku. So big- Big event, big symbol for progress for Bolivia that these indigenous people have finally like gotten a president in charge. Mm -hmm. So remember how I said that Bolivia was made of silver? Yes, you did say that. I recall that. Bolivia also happens to be uh, one of the largest deposits of lithium. And lithium is a metal that is required for the making of rechargeable batteries. It sure is. Lithium-ion batteries. And a certain South African billionaire who owns a large electric car company uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, had an interest in getting a cheap supply of lithium sure did from say bolivia mm-hmm. who could that be who could you be po- who could you possibly be talking about so a couple of years ago evo morales got reelected in a pretty large majority because he's an extremely popular president so after this election happened in 2019 the organization of american states alleged irregularities in the electoral process now, the Organization of American States has a bit of a reputation of being um, an extent of U.S. foreign policy, mm-hmm. let's say. So all of a sudden, there were protests, uh, claims of political corruption that Evo Morales uh, rigged the election. And uh, oh, no. yeah, so what happened is that nothing good Evo Morales had to flee the country to Mexico and a woman by the name of Janine Añez a right-wing politician took the presidency uh she didn't do it by getting votes okay or anything like that feels like that's a step you gotta take but okay and when she took the presidency she uh showed up with a big bible saying that uh the bible has returned to the government because uh you know the indigenous people practice their own religion and such gross oh that's so gross come on Uh, bolivia has two flags the one that you're probably more familiar with and then it has an indigenous flag as well Mm -hmm. police officers were tearing those off and there was uh brutal violence against indigenous protesters who supported evo morales yeah it was um i mean i can't say it was a coup that was pushed by the united states but it was definitely not not a coup that was pushed by the united states and uh um, that's when uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Elon Musk said on Twitter that we should be able to coup any country we want, basically. Great. Love that. Love that for him. Love that journey that he's on. What a good, benevolent leader. What a smart man that Elon Musk is. What a treasure. Yeah. Um, now, there is another side to this, or there's another um, a, a cycle to this story, which is that uh, there was eventually an election. It got delayed because of COVID. Mm -hmm. But in 2020, there was an election. 
And Janine Añez lost to Evo Morales's twin brother, who looks exactly the same, but with a definitely real facial hair mustache. Close. So uh, this election in 2020 was won by Luis Arce, who was... Evo Morales' Minister of the Economy and Public Finance. Okay. So he's from Evo Morales' party. Uh, and it was like a big multi-party election, and he won like pretty decisively. Okay. Is it is this good? Do we like this this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Three people were running in the race by the end, and mm-hmm. he won 55% of the vote. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Pretty dang good. See? The votes matter. It's important. <laughs> and like in many of the elections, they dominated in indigenous areas. So this was seen as a really big deal. And eventually, Evo Morales was able to return home to huge fanfare. Uh, he did a bunch of events, and it was it's a sign that uh, you know, eventually things things work can work out sometimes. Yeah. And OAS then, uh, much after this election, uh, quietly in a New York Times piece uh, said that it turns out that actually it wasn't a fraudulent election after all. Um, they were wrong. Oops. Sorry about oops, that one. Oops. What a big <laughs> oops. We did a whoopsie, everyone. Whoops. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's irresponsible. So that's fun. But this just shows like how a site like Pumapunku and Tiwanaku can be very rhetorically important. And in like what's going on in Bolivia, like thinking about the rights and the um you know the respect for indigenous culture and the great things and like there's 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 a lot of good stuff going on in this situation. So to then be like, well, obviously it was aliens. Yeah, I was going to say, we're <laughs> dancing around this big question. We're learning about all of this very interesting history, very important history, and even modern day uh, stuff. How this how this ancient site really ties into modern day things that are happening. But we're an aliens podcast, so I inevitably <laughs> yeah. have to I have to ask you the question that's on everyone's mind. Is it aliens, though? So... Probably not. And like, it seems that in a country where the cultural sophistication and like, you know, the status of indigenous people has been a point of contention for then somebody to be like, oh, indigenous people didn't build Pumapunku. It was white Atlanteans or aliens. Yeah. Yeah. You can see this sort of political context in which something might get more attention than it deserves mm-hmm. it's incredibly gross it's it's like weaponized mythology almost trying to overwrite the indigenous people's history mm-hmm. now there's a lot of mysteries at this site i'm not gonna lie uh we don't really know how those stones were moved we don't know how they were carved. Those are very interesting questions. And there are people with PhDs in archaeology who spend their entire lives trying to get the answers. Mm. So, yeah, there's impressive things here that we don't have explanations for. That's cool. Questions are awesome. Questions are awesome. But does that mean, is this the case for an alien of the gaps? Or is it just that we don't have a lot of information about this site that is over a thousand years old? Well, I'm going to say aliens, probably. <laughs> um no, I yeah, I think it's a very very old site and I I think the fact that we don't know a lot of these uh, the answers to these questions doesn't mean we give up and say it's aliens. It means we keep digging. We keep looking for this information. And uh, since I know that your line is uh, all context, no content. Yeah, something um, like that. You can also look at other examples of stonemasonry by equally technologically developed civilizations that are equally impressive, that don't seem to be claimed to be aliens. Like, for example, 
the Greek Parthenon, which is a thousand years older than Pumapunku, and yet nobody seems to claim how they were able to build that. Mm. The Persians have Persepolis uh, and the Palace of Darius, which is also very detailed and actually has a lot of construction very similar to Pumapunku. Nobody wonders how the Persians made that. No one wonders. Interesting. And in India, there's the Udayagiri Caves, which are these like uh, megalithic doors. Again, older than Pumapunku, but nobody questions uh, who built them. So yeah, the the end of the thing is the Tiwanaku people made amazing work, uh, but by no means is it inexplicably superior to what can be found throughout the ancient world. So it's really unnecessary to invoke aliens to explain the structures. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, as you're saying, all of these other sites are older are equally as impressive but i do you think it's just that there's all all those other places have more information about how they were built versus pumapunku and so because there's that gap in knowledge people fill it in with aliens i mean a lot of those sites had written words and i'll tell you one thing if you are a student of history or archaeology you'll learn that um you want to have your stuff remembered. Uh, having a writing system works in your favor. Although I will say that um, the region does have a writing system that came before indigenous people. And it's really cool. It has nothing to do with this. Okay. But it's called Kipu writing. And it is a language. It's a written language that's written with knots in string. Oh, that's cool. I like that a lot. But uh, that, as far as we know, has either not been developed or did not, there, you know, artifacts of it did not survive at the time of Pumapunku. So mm. they didn't have a right written language. And that is the main reason why we don't know what happened. Well, I think what we can hopefully, and again, not definitively, because we still need to figure out there's still more mysteries to uncover. But I think For the time being, we can probably say it was probably not aliens. Yeah, probably not this one. Well, there's always next week. Folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of It's Probably Not Aliens. Uh, As always, please follow us on Twitter at It's Probs Not Aliens. And you can also follow me. I do lots of YouTube stuff over at youtube.com slash NerdSync Productions. Or you can just search for NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. If you like comic books and history and other nerdy things, come check it out. Tristan, what do you do for a living? Uh, I make videos about history and uh, about the world in general. Uh, it's It's turning into the feel bad hit of the summer (laughs) things are going real well so i'll probably have over a hundred thousand subscribers by the time you listen to this that's incredibly exciting uh and if you love this podcast please leave us your reviews i'm gonna make the call here i'm gonna stop calling for four star reviews i'm just gonna say leave us your reviews they could be four star they could be five star uh i'm just so worried about (laughs) about this podcast uh about the algorithm. The algorithm. We've already dug our grave on this one, but that's okay. To make up for it, please tell your friends about this podcast if you like listening to it. Go back and change your four-star review to a five-star review. That's right. All of you listeners who are definitely here still because you like what we talk about, now go back and change it, please. We want to immediately bump up from four stars to five stars. I don't know why I thought that would be so funny. It's just got me more worried than anything. I was like, it'll be the funniest thing in the world if we're the four-starist podcast on iTunes. And now I, every week I'm like, oh, we, we screwed ourselves over on this one, didn't we, for a really silly joke. But anyway... Uh, Thanks so much for listening again. And as always, Tristan, you want to take us out of here? Yeah, the truth is out there. Probably. Probably.